Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Live events are a bit of a rarity these days, so I can't wait for my live show coming up in Kilkenny on November the 6th. It's going to be a great event. It's been months in the making and I'm really excited now by the way it's shaping up. So any good live show is dependent on a great venue and for a history show I don't think you can get better than St Mary's Church in Kilkenny. It houses the Medieval Mile Museum today but it has to be one of the oldest venues in the country. It's 800 years old and was built by Strongbow's son-in-law. So on November the 6th, in these atmospheric surroundings, the plan is to transport you back to an Ireland of the 1920s in the grip of the War of Independence. Dr. Regina Donnan is going to delve into the experiences of emigrants during the war. So Regina's fresh research into the stories of these migrants who came back to Ireland to fight in the conflict is one you won't have heard before. Then, in the second part of the show, you'll be completely immersed in history. Nothing brings the past to life better than the voices of those who lived through and experienced events in history. So for this part of the show, voice actor Aidan Crow will be joining me on stage. And as I guide you through some of the history, Aidan will be bringing the past to life through his vivid narrations of letters, diaries and accounts from the time. This is going to be the closest you can get to the War of Independence in 2021. All the preparations for this great event are done. All that's needed now is you. So you can get tickets today at historyshow.eventbrite.com. Now it's not often I say this, but it's worth pausing the show right now and go to historyshow.eventbrite.com to get your tickets. That link is also in the show notes below the episode. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The War of Independence, Part 19, Bloody Sunday. At the end of last week's show, we saw how the Republican movement in Ireland was reeling in the aftermath of the death of Sean Tracy. The war was turning against them as Crown forces were closing in around the IRA leadership. This episode picks up that story by starting in London, where the government and the Prime Minister of the day... Lloyd George were growing in confidence that they were winning the war. 
However, as we're about to see, the IRA were down, but not out. Now, before I get into this story of Bloody Sunday, it's worth flagging. We have some pretty cool memorabilia associated with the events in this episode and the last one in the shop at the moment. So from the last episode, we have a Kevin Barry enamel badge and reproductions of the Wanted poster issued for Dan Breen during the war. In terms of today's episode, we have a common Le Mans badge and flag as well. You can get all these at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I have a link to that in the show notes as well. Now let's go to London in late 1920 and start on the road to Bloody Sunday. Additional research is by Sam McGrath, sound by Jason Looney and additional narrations are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. One of London's oldest customs takes place each November. After the city's new Lord Mayor takes office, they host a banquet at the Guildhall, a large medieval building in the city. The tradition stretches back centuries, with one of the earliest such events being recorded in 1419. Now, by the 20th century, the event had changed slightly, and it was customary for the Lord Mayor to invite the Prime Minister of the day as the guest of honour. They frequently used the occasion to deliver a speech similar to a State of the Nation address, and this, along with the spectacle of the banquets, drew cabinet ministers, politicians, foreign ambassadors, and, of course, the press. On November the 9th, 1920, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of the day, arrived at the Guildhall to deliver a speech he hoped would draw a line in the sand and would put the crisis that had dominated his government behind him finally. He had come to power in December 1916, when the outcome of the First World War still hung in the balance. The following year, the Russian Revolution led to the foundation of the world's first communist state, which posed a threat not only to the British Empire, but capitalism itself. The end of World War I in 1918 had been followed almost immediately by the outbreak of the Irish War of Independence the following January, and by 1920, strikes were becoming increasingly common in Britain, due to a recession which had gripped the country. Nevertheless, by November 1920, as he rose to address the assembled dignitaries in the Guildhall, Lloyd George adopted an optimistic tone. Even though the world seemed beset by war and revolution, he was hopeful. He pointed to the fact that the defeated Germany had demilitarised as agreed in the Versailles Treaty, which many feared they would refuse to do. Meanwhile, the Communists who had taken power in Moscow during the Russian Revolution, could not survive, he said, although he neglected to explain why he thought this was the case. Then, on the domestic front, he was hopeful as well. Five days earlier, a lengthy national coal strike had ended, opening up the potential for industrial peace. And finally, he turned to Ireland. But here too, he was no less optimistic. Indeed, in his speech, he said, Unless I am mistaken, By the steps we have taken, we have murder by the throat. I ask you not to pay too much heed to the distorted accounts by partisans who give detailed descriptions of the horrors of what they call reprisals and slurs over the horrors of murder. Such was his confidence in victory that Lloyd George was in no mood for compromise in Ireland. There would be no negotiated settlement, he said, until the IRA had been defeated. There will be no peace in Ireland. There will be no consolation until this murder conspiracy is scattered. There was no doubt that news from Ireland was improving from a British perspective. 
The Crown forces had scored a string of significant victories in recent weeks, most notably the killing of Sean Tracy in mid-October. His government had adopted a harsher attitude in general in their approach to Ireland. They had allowed Terence McSweeney to die on hunger strike in Brixton jail and rejected pleas for clemency in the case of the 18-year-old Kevin Barry. Both men were dead and buried and in the government's eyes, McSweeney's case in particular had put an end to what had been a very effective strategy of hunger striking which had secured the release of hundreds of Republican prisoners in the war up to this point. These recent events were not only positive on the wider political front, but for Lloyd George it would help silence his internal critics who had long questioned his strategy in the war. Since the outset of the Irish War of Independence, he had refused to treat the conflict in Ireland with the gravity some felt it deserved. He had insisted it was not actually a war, but ultimately a law and order issue that could be dealt with by the police. Even as the Royal Irish Constabulary had appeared to be on the verge of collapse, he had refused to allow the army to take full control in Ireland. The army high command had wanted to declare martial law, but he held firm and instead reinforced the police with the black and tans and the auxiliaries. By November 1920, this strategy finally seemed to be working. Indeed, only hours after the last revellers left the Guildhall in London, events across the Irish Sea in Dublin seemed to further confirm Lloyd George's claim that the British were retaking control in Ireland. On November the 10th, Crown forces tracked down the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, and raided the house where he was staying. As we saw in last week's episode, while Mulcahy did escape, a cache of sensitive documents were seized. This was followed up by other alarming developments, for the IRA at least. On November the 13th, the three deputy directors of IRA intelligence, Tom Cullen, Frank Thornton and Liam Tobin, were all arrested by Crown forces. Although their real identity was not known to the authorities and they were released, there was no doubt a net was closing around the IRA leadership in Dublin. However, despite all these events, Lloyd George had in fact vastly overestimated the dominance of the Crown forces in Ireland, or at least underestimated the IRA. They were by no means going to go quietly into the night. Intimately aware of the dangers they faced, the intelligence department of the IRA was planning a devastating blow on British intelligence. Now, to fully appreciate this, we need to acquaint ourselves with an individual mentioned across multiple episodes, but never properly introduced, Michael Collins. As the IRA's Director of Intelligence, it fell to him to coordinate this operation. Born at a place called Sam's Cross in West Cork in 1890, Michael Collins' early experience was one common to his generation. He emigrated at the age of 15 to London, working as a clerk in the post office and then at a stockbroker's office. It was there in London he first became involved in the Republican movement and had returned to Ireland by early 1916. He participated in the Rising, serving as aide-de-camp to Joseph Plunkett. Court-martialed in the aftermath, he was imprisoned in Wales but was released by Christmas 1916. Now, it was in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising that Collins began to rise through the ranks of the Republican movement as it reorganised. He became a senior figure in the Irish Volunteers, which would evolve into the IRA. Although he was by no means the unquestioned leader he is sometimes made out to be. 
For example, Richard Mulcahy had been chosen as the chief of staff in 1918, while Eamon de Valera dominated the political side of the movement. However, Collins was far more personable than the distant, aloof de Valera or the dour Mulcahy, who, although very capable, lacked the charisma of Collins or de Valera. Michael Collins began to emerge as an extremely influential figure from around the year 1918, though. By 1919, he was serving as the Minister for Finance in the First Doyle, as well as the IRA's Director of Intelligence. He was also the President of the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a secret society that operated within the IRA, which will be discussed in a later episode. In the context of Michael Collins, however, the fact that he held all three positions simultaneously afforded him far greater influence and power than it appeared on paper. Now, his rise through the ranks of the Republican movement was in no small part down to his remarkable organisational skills. As early as 1917, he had started to put together an intelligence arm of the Republican movement, and he had slowly built up a network of spies and informers. Some of these, such as railway workers, appeared to have very little influence or even involvement in the war, but Collins recognised they could provide crucial information. For example, it had been railway contacts who had provided the intelligence that led to the IRA ambush at Ashtown Station in December 1919 that targeted the Viceroy of Ireland, Lord John French, as they were able to provide the exact movements of his train. As well as these, Collins also managed to recruit the occasional policeman and British intelligence agent who had direct access to sensitive information. However, some of the most valuable IRA assets that he recruited proved to be the clerical staff who worked in Dublin Castle where British intelligence were quartered. Lily Mernon, for example, was one such person who provided crucial information throughout the war to Collins and IRA intelligence. She later recalled how she had been recruited. The Piers Beasley, she mentions, was the editor of the IRA's newspaper, Antogluck. I was employed as a shorthand typist in Dublin Castle during the years 1914 to 1922. Piers Beasley, who is a relative of mine, used to visit my house and during the course of conversation I may have made some references to the work on which I was engaged in Dublin Castle. Apparently, Beasley spoke to Michael Collins about me because sometime in 1918, Collins asked to meet me and Piers Beasley brought him to my home and introduced him as a Mr. Brennan. I didn't know he was Collins at the time. He asked would I be willing to pass out any information that might be of value which I would come across in my work. I promised to give him all the assistance I possibly could. Known by the codename Little Gentleman, Lily not only smuggled documents out of Dublin Castle, but also accompanied IRA intelligence officers to events where she was able to identify off-duty officers in civilian clothing. This was just one example of the extensive network that had been built up by Collins before and during the early stages of the war. In 1919, this was matched by the formation of a select group of volunteers known as the Squad, who provided the IRA with the ability to act on intelligence they would be able to target key figures in British intelligence, for example. This group, largely chosen from the ranks of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, directly reported to Michael Collins rather than any IRA commander and have been the source of myth and legend since the 1920s. The idea of forming this group, known as the Squad, 
seems to have been developed by Dick McKee, the commandant of the Dublin Brigade, but it was most associated with Collins as the director of intelligence. The members of the squad became full-time revolutionaries who were paid a wage so they would not be tied down and have to work in ordinary jobs like most IRA members did. Through 1919 and early 1920, they carried out numerous operations which were highly effective. They killed several police detectives as well as the assistant commissioner of the Dublin Metropolitan Police and a man called Alan Bell, a magistrate whose expertise in tracing money posed a grave threat to the Republican movement. Having established this highly effective intelligence network and the means to act on it, the IRA were in a position, therefore, to strike back at British intelligence as they closed in around the leadership of the Republican movement around November 1920. Through that month, they began to plan a large-scale operation in Dublin to hit back Crown forces in the city. There were several purposes and aims of this operation. It was hoped it would inflict a serious blow on British intelligence in Ireland eliminating several key figures while striking fear into those spearheading the campaign against Republicans in the city. If successful, it would also demonstrate at home and abroad that the IRA could still fight on, despite what Lloyd George had said in his Guildhall speech. The operation was far too large to be carried out by the members of the squad alone, so dozens of members of the Dublin IRA were drafted in. Meanwhile, the list of targets drawn up was enormous. 50 in total, most of them suspected agents, informers or other key figures in Dublin Castle. However, on seeing this list, the Minister for Defence in the Doyle, Cahill Brewer, removed over a dozen names because he felt the evidence against them was too weak. The final list was still extensive. On the morning of Sunday the 21st of November 1920, the IRA were going to kill 36 people across Dublin in what would be the largest action in the war to date. Most were assumed to be intelligence agents, although some had sat on court-martials which had sentenced Republican prisoners. However, just after the IRA finalised the plans, in the early hours of Sunday the 21st of November, the growing threat posed to Republicans in Dublin by Crown forces was demonstrated in a raid that very nearly threw the entire operation into doubt. It certainly probably would have led to the operation being cancelled had it happened days earlier. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Acting on information from an informer, James Shankers Ryan, Crown Forces raided a house in the North Inner City where they arrested Dick McKee 
the commandant of the Dublin Brigade, and his vice commandant, Pather Clancy. Both men had been heavily involved in planning the events that were due to take place just hours later. They were taken to Dublin Castle knowing that the Crown forces would probably exact a terrible vengeance on them once the attacks went ahead. Nevertheless, McKee and Clancy said nothing. They just sat and waited. A few hours later, on Sunday morning, the operation went ahead and at least 170 volunteers were mobilised. They were largely drawn from the ranks of the IRA, although women from Comanaman, as well as activists from the youth organisation Nafiana Ern, as well as the socialist militia, the Citizen Army, played important roles. While teams of volunteers went to various targets across the city, the following is an account of the IRA volunteer James Cahill, who was in a unit who targeted agents living in the Gresham Hotel on O'Connell Street in the city centre. On Saturday night, 20th of November, 12 or 14 men of D Company, 2nd Battalion, assembled at a meeting place in the vicinity of Amiens Street. A number of HQ and brigade staff officers were present and informed us that the important operation was planned to take place at nine next morning. Our intelligence had located the chief British intelligence officers throughout the city. It was planned to shoot all of those intelligence officers the next morning. D Company was given the task of dealing with three intelligence officers who were residing in the Gresham Hotel. Three groups, consisting of three men, each were detailed to carry out the shooting. The next morning, I met the company commander, Paddy Moran, opposite the Gresham Hotel. At 9am, Cahill was about to enter the hotel when he froze after someone had called to him using his name. As we passed the newsboy, call me by my name, asking if I required a paper. A second newsboy, seeing our men converge on the hotel, called to the first. There's a job on. Best clear out of this. We let them go as we were confident that they would not give any alarm. I ordered the head porter to guide us to McCormick's room. We found his room, door closed, but unlocked. Nick Leonard and I entered the room and moved towards McCormick, who was partially sitting up in bed. He fired the bullet passing between Nick and myself, burying itself into the door jamb. We fired almost in the same, instantly killing him outright. Well, this was replicated in houses and hotels across the city. In the aftermath of each of these operations, women from Comanaman played an important role in getting the weapons used out of the area without attracting police attention. Anya O'Brien, a Comanaman volunteer, would later remember her role. On Saturday night, we were approached by Christy Byrne, who was officer company of the F Company of the 4th Battalion, he told us we were wanted to be ready at six o'clock the next morning as there was a big job on and they wanted the three of us to be at University Church and to wait till he and two others would arrive and hand over guns to us. We were at the church at the appointed time and to avoid attention we went inside two at a time and attended Mass while the third remained in the porch and watched. We heard the shooting quite near as the operations were in progress in that area and after waiting during what seemed to us an eternity, the three fellows came along walking pretty smartly and handed over their guns to us, one each in a laneway between the church and Harcourt Street. We put the guns in our pockets 
and proceeded home. In several locations, the IRA volunteers discovered their targets were not at home, or in some instances, the individuals in question managed to fight them off. While Michael Collins would express a disappointment that the final number killed had not been higher, the fact that 12 men had been shot that morning had a seismic impact on the authorities. When news began to filter back to Dublin Castle, a panic and fear gripped the Crown forces. Brigadier General Frank Crozier, the commander of the Auxiliary Division in Ireland, remembered bringing in news about one of the shootings that had taken place at Mount Street, which had led to the deaths of three people. Never shall I forget the scene in the mess when I walked in and announced the three murders. I had just finished my story when the telephone rang. What? I heard as the speaker paled, ashy white. In Leeson Street? Yes, yes. Uh, Hold on. About fifty officers are shot, he said as he turned, staggering as he clutched the table. In all parts of the city, Collins has done in most of the Secret Service people. Now this was certainly an exaggeration. Nevertheless, twelve agents had been killed. Two members of the Auxiliary Division had also been shot, while one IRA volunteer, Frank Teeling, had been shot and captured. While it has been argued that some of those targeted were not in fact agents, and overall the operation had a limited effect. The following British Army report paints a very different picture. The murders of November 21st, 1920 temporarily paralysed the Army's special branch. Several of its most efficient officers were murdered, and the majority of other officers were brought into the castle and the central hotel for safety. This centralisation in the most inconvenient of places possible greatly decreased the opportunities for obtaining information and for re-establishing anything in the nature of a secret service. Although their intelligence division may have been paralysed, the Crown forces in Dublin reacted immediately. Over the course of the war, there had been multiple incidents where they had exacted a collective punishment on the wider population. And in Dublin in November 1920, it would be no different. A few hours after the IRA attacks, a Gaelic football match was due to take place between Dublin and Tipperary in Croke Park, close to the city centre. Believing this match had been used as a ruse for IRA volunteers to filter into Dublin, the commander of the Crown Forces in Ireland, Sir Neville Macready, ordered that the crowd in attendance be searched. After three o'clock, when the match was already well underway, a force of around 100 members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliary Division arrived at Crow Park. The situation very quickly got out of control. While they would claim someone in the crowd had opened fire on them, they had in fact opened fire almost immediately on arrival. What unfolded was among the most notorious massacres of the entire War of Independence. 14 people were shot and killed and 60 were injured. Armoured cars present fired over the heads of the fleeing crowd, which only led to the growing panic and a stampede during which two people were killed. The Freeman's Journal, struggling to capture the enormity of the event, proclaimed it an Irish armritzer, a reference to a British army slaughter of hundreds of people in India the previous year. However, the day's violence was not at an end yet. Back in Dublin Castle, the authorities now focused their anger on three men they had taken prisoner the night before. Dick McKee, Pather Clancy and Conor Clune. As mentioned earlier, McKee and Clancy were the commandant and vice-commandant of the Dublin Brigade, but Clune was a case of mistaken identity. The Clare man 
was in fact only in Dublin on business. The three were taken out, brutally interrogated, and then shot in Dublin Castle, with Crown forces claiming they had tried to escape. While the IRA had severely impeded the ability of British intelligence to act in the city, the deaths of McKee and Clancy that day were an incalculable loss to the Dublin Brigade. Clancy, in particular, had played a very important role in the war in general. As we saw in part 10 of the series, he had led IRA prisoners during the hunger strike in Mountjoy Jail the previous March, before then travelling to Derry, where sectarian violence had rocked the city. As news of the day's events and the widespread bloodshed spread across Dublin, it was no wonder that many struggled to comprehend what had happened. 33 people in total had been killed in a matter of hours. Then to round off what was nothing short of a horrific day, shocking news arrived from the West. The previous evening, a body had been found in a bog in rural Galway. Over the following day, it was formally identified to be that of a Catholic priest, Father Michael Griffin. He had been executed. There was a bullet wound in his head. The authorities tried to claim he had been killed by the IRA, but this convinced no one. The priest was a well-known Republican, and it was widely believed he had been executed by the Black and Tans. On Monday, November the 22nd, the Dublin-based Freeman's Journal tried to grapple with the events that had just unfolded. The newspaper, which was moderately nationalist, but opposed to the IRA and its outlook, was among the first to label the events Bloody Sunday. Yesterday was Dublin's Bloody Sunday. In the morning, some 14 officers and men of the military and secret services were shot dead. In the afternoon, the authorised answer of the government agents came in the form of an attack upon a football crowd assembled, unsuspecting of evil, to watch a match in Croke Park. The slaughter was a classic example of a government reprisal. The pretense that the firing was provoked by an attack upon the government forces will deceive no one in Ireland. Then the news comes of the discovery of the murdered body of Father Griffin. That tragedy carries us back beyond even the dark, evil days of 1798. It means more vengeance, more bloodshed, more reprisals. What is to be the end? Lloyd George boasted at the London Mansion House that he was succeeding. He had murder by the throat and the murder gang were on the run. If they were on the run, they have turned back with a vengeance. The government are steadily and relentlessly destroying and dissolving all the possibilities of friendly union between the British and Irish peoples. In the following days, it became clear that Bloody Sunday was going to lead to a widening of the conflict. An intense debate began in London as to how the British authorities should react. The army demanded martial law should be declared and they be given complete control. However, before any decision was made, the IRA upped the stakes. Within a week of Bloody Sunday, volunteers in Liverpool and West Cork set in motion what were sensational plans. So next week's show will begin on the docks in Merseyside before heading to West Cork, where we'll join an IRA unit as they take on the Auxiliary Division in one of the most famous battles of the war, Kill Michael. That's all coming in next week's show. Until then, Sloan.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.